Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by an old friend, Catherine Weber-Boer, who is a socialist of the international revolutionary variety. As a young activist, she was involved in the campaign to end the death penalty, Palestinian activism, and the movement against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. She now lives in the Netherlands, where she is occupied by motherhood, wage labor, and household management. She's a wife, mother, and university employee. In her free time, she is working towards a PhD in archaeology, trying to understand political power in the past. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks. It's great to be here. All right. Let's catch up first. How the heck are you doing? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right here. Um, and as we just discussed briefly, I, it's strange to be all right. Um, in the Netherlands, we had uh, it was the second week of March. We went home, uh, started working from home. If you weren't an essential employee, uh, everything closed down. Uh, there wasn't, you couldn't go shopping unless it was for home goods or groceries. Uh, so a lot of renovation projects got done. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, yeah, we started going back to, some people have been going back to work. Most people are continuing to work from home, but we've really, they call it an intelligent lockdown here. And um, basically we've recovered, especially in our area of the Netherlands, we're in the north. And up here we have so few cases that people are behaving more or less, uh, well, let's say it's a lot more relaxed than I see it, the need for in the United States. So I'm doing well, which feels strange in the midst of a global pandemic and the situation in the U.S. Uh, yeah, talk to us a little bit about what that's like living abroad and watching so many of your friends and family experience what we're experiencing here in the U.S. while, you know, where you live, people and the government have dealt with this much better. Yeah, it's um, it's it's staggering. I, I mean, I you know, I, I, I didn't think that the U.S. could shock me in its uh, <laughs> depravity. Uh, any more than it already had. I, the the activism I was involved in in the United States, you know, ranged from domestic to international. I, I didn't really have very high standards, um, but watching watching it collapse has been really, uh, yeah, um, staggering. Um, but let's see. So uh, for us, it's been, uh, yeah, it, it's. I really don't know how else to say it. It's just it, the 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 shock of of how bad it, it has gotten and how little some people appear to be aware that there was an alternative. Right. Um, yeah. So we've we've recovered so well because the government took strong action. Um, and it's also this is something I think that's important to observe. The things that I thought democracy rested on, or that that we talk as political scientists about democracy resting on, like uh, freedom of movement or um, uh, uh, codes of dress not being regulated, all of these things they don't they don't matter. I don't live in a less democratic country right now in the Netherlands because we couldn't go. Uh, to certain kinds of businesses for a while, or because we have to wear face cap, uh, mouth caps in, sorry, mondkapjes is the word in Dutch. Uh, so we don't have to wear masks in public. Now we wear masks in public transportation. That's not a restriction on my freedom. That doesn't diminish our ability to form a, uh, a government that's more or less representative of people's wishes. It's not what we thought. Like these, that's been a surprise too, I guess. Yeah. Right. What? How about the people that you know that you're living around? I mean, wh what are the sort of interactions? They know, I'm assuming that you're from the United States. So what are those interactions? What have they been like since the pandemic? I'm sure we could go on and tell many stories about the questions and comments they have about what's happening in the U.S. But just generally since the pandemic has started, what are the sort of conversations you're having with, with uh, Dutch people that you're around? Yeah, people are um, really sympathetic, I think, for one, and they also just don't understand, uh, I, I, which is completely understandable because I don't right. usually. <laughs> no um, one understands. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> incomprehensible. But 
I would say they're 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 baffled. They they look to they want explanations from me, but this has always been the case. People want. It's also very funny because, as much as we say, oh, people from other countries know that Americans aren't all the same. They they do ask me as though I'm somehow responsible. What on earth is going on with Trump? Right. right. It's. That goodness knows, I don't understand how he has the support that he has. Um, so yeah, it, it is, people are baffled. Um, and really, and, and also, I think this is important to note, that, that people here are aware of how much the United States impacts them. And the United States Im does impact them. Um, it's not just in terms of direct policies but also this kind of cultural um, conversations come out of the United States. And the, the U.S. news also dominates the news here. You know, it's a... It's a, some, I was having dinner, actually, with a, uh, a child <laughs> yesterday, and she had a really clear... She, she, she didn't understand, actually, that she couldn't vote or that the Dutch people couldn't vote in American elections, she said, we shouldn't vote for Trump. And I said, that's true, <laughs> unfortunately, um, even though you're definitely impacted by US policy and, and US culture, you don't get a say in it. So it is sort of, yeah, the rest of the world is a bit hostage to the situation in the US. And in and, and turn though, that also means that we have, for example, now a conversation in the Netherlands happening about race that uh, wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Black Lives Matter. Um, it's not the same, uh, or and it shouldn't be the same. There are very different backgrounds and uh, and, and causes of, of racial tension uh, and inequality in the Netherlands, but it's a conversation that's starting, and it's starting because of U.S. activity. That's so important. I mean, the so it's not just the negative that, that, you know, those ripple effects that take place throughout the world when something bad happens in the U.S., but it's also when something good happens. And I think that's such an important point to make for people here who, you, I mean, you've seen it from both sides. I mean, so you're within the empire. It feels so big and so powerful, and it feels like nothing you do makes much of a difference. Um, and then from the outside, you see how even those little acts of resistance mean so much to people around the world. And that's Absolutely. been my experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's 100% correct. And the only challenge is making sure that people see them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really, like, think, I, I, people bash on social media a lot, but I think that it's, it, it has a really important role, and, and that is sharing uh, stories that wouldn't get told otherwise, that people hear when, when people in the U.S. are fighting back. Um, you know, People, sometimes older uh, people uh, past a certain age in the Netherlands, for example, don't realize how, how many of us were fighting how hard against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They, people, the, the assumption was, oh, this was, you know, happened without much protest. But we were right. in the streets every weekend, it felt like. Yeah. Um, and and, and that, uh, that isn't possible now. You can't hide that now. Right. So, yeah, I think you're right. There's absolutely a double, it's a double-edged sword. There can be a lot of damage done by the United States, but activists in the U.S. make a difference far beyond the borders. Of the country. How long have you been living in the Netherlands now? I haven't, I didn't. Five even... years, almost four and a half, something like that. Yeah. Okay. It was January 2016. Oh, wow. So yeah. right when Trump was inaugurated, you were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was planned before that, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then, because I want to jump back, I want to. Yeah, go... I wasn't. I wasn't actually fleeing Trump, but uh, it was a side. Yeah. How How has that been? Just generally, I mean, we start. We talked specifically about the pandemic, but I mean, just kind of curious as a, as a friend, but also as just someone who I think can illuminate some of those challenges for Americans who might not ever get a chance to live abroad. What What is that like for you? And what have the challenges been? Well, I'll say two things. Uh, hang on, I want to um, uh, remember both. Uh, 
So one is that um, I've lived in a couple of different places outside of the US and um, just as a sort of point of curiosity, it's harder for me to live here in the Netherlands than it was for me to live in, for example, uh, Georgia, which is the country of Georgia, which is a, um, yeah, was formerly part of the Soviet, it was an autonomous Soviet socialist republic, um, and, and much more different. And that is because uh, the culture shock, I think, here is more uh, um, surprising. You're in a situation where everything looks more or less the same. The architecture even isn't very different than some U.S. cities. Uh, the, the people speak English very well. Um, most people are practically fluent. The, uh, the grocery stores are more or less the same. But then something happens that's different and all of a sudden it feels really strange. It's like if you were at home and all of a sudden people were like, what do you mean cold medicine? Right. And you're like, what, what, what do you mean? What do I mean? <laughs> anyway, that's not, that's not a big political point, but it is, it is the, the funny thing about living here in, in Western Europe, I would say in particular, that's a, a factor. But the bigger thing and the second thing is that, and I was, I've, this has come, become really prominent to me in, since the pandemic, but it's not actually pandemic related. It's that the, the expectation of how good your life should be is different here. Like I have a really good uh, work-life balance. Like the, to, to give an example, in, my, in the first week of lockdown, my manager at, at the university sent three emails to our office or to, to me. One was copying the entire office saying, I hope everyone's doing all right. The second one was copying all of the international employees who were um, you know, saying, I understand this must be particularly challenging for you. Uh, the third one was to me in particular because I had just started a week before at this, this job. And, and he was saying that he hoped that I was doing all right personally. The, and, and none of that was necessary. You know, one of them would have been, you know, kind. Right. Three are an employee who's actually a person who has personal needs and exposure and, and anxieties. Um, the manager of the entire library uh, sent an email and it wasn't about um, maintaining productivity or how we had to do better uh, working from home. It was saying, remember to take care of yourselves. Remember what matters. Look after the health of you and your family. And then whatever you can do for your job, we're so grateful you can do it still. Um, and that's like, can you imagine? No. <laughs> no. I know people in the U.S. who have like white collar jobs that make like well over six figures who aren't treated like that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's shocking. It's it's and and I I had known that I you know, there's a collective labor agreement for university employees, so I, I have protections in my job that are also unheard of in, in the US, but but it's not just what what labor has done, right? It's not just what um what collective bargaining has given employees. It's also an attitude that you should be uh, happy in your job and that your job should not make your life miserable. Right. Um, and to that end too, there was another, um, ah, there's a thing here called uh, having, is having a breakdown. No, there's a, oh, now I'm going to forget the, the term for it. But in, in essence, you can, as a matter of health, have a, an inability to continue working because of stress. And that's protected. You, you go on leave, you have counseling, you continue to get paid, as, as I understand it. But most importantly, you come back at the end of it to your job, and you're reintroduced to your job slowly, so that you don't like jump in and get overwhelmed with emotional burden and can't do your job anymore. Like right. it's <laughs> now very unheard of. Yeah. And, and I don't think I, I, I had no, I knew that 
working life was different in Europe before I moved here, but I didn't know how much, and I couldn't have conceived of it as an, as an employee in the United States. And I don't think, and this is also important understanding the perspective of outsiders onto American life. I think it's really essential to understand that they don't realize how bad it is in the U.S. Right. Like, because Americans can't articulate that themselves because they don't realize it. Yeah. But it is, as you say, even solid, comfortable, secure, white-collar labor is hell. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, and it's true that a lot of people, I think one of the shocking, one of the good things that's come of the Bernie Sanders campaign was around 2016, 2015, 2016, I started to see an influx of posts, emails, articles, documentaries, sort of comparing and contrasting what we have in the United States with what many other people enjoy around the world. And I think for the past four or five years, I've seen a major shift in terms of the amount of Americans who are starting to recognize just how screwed we're getting here. The pandemic, I think, has exposed that even more. My concern is that not so much that Americans, I think more and more people are realizing, I agree with you that probably the majority still don't understand the extent to which we're getting screwed compared to other industrialized nations. But what I worry about, and this is a conversation for another day, but my concern is more so that Americans see this and as things get worse and worse here, they're just like, what could we do? Yeah, there's nothing to do about it. It's going to keep getting worse. This is just the way it is in the U.S. And I mean, that we can sort of go off into that if you'd like. But I mean, it actually ties really back to when we first met. I mean, we met each other during, you were working with the ISO at the time. I was working with Iraq Veterans Against the War. I was just home from Iraq, joined the anti-war movement. You, as I mentioned in a private message, and you didn't even know this, but you were one of the first officially like self-identified socialists that I had ever met in my entire life. Um, <laughs> yes, it's a great honor <laughs> and still one of the most reasonable ones. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I, you know, and I think Kurt Vonnegut once said that trying to stop a war is like trying to stop winter. Um, it's, there's, I don't think there's an activity or a project politically that's more difficult than trying to stop a war uh, and everything that's tied up in that. I've seen, and you've seen a lot of great progressive movement on any number of issues over the years. It seems like the one issue where there's virtually no movement uh, is the, the U.S. war machine. And so that also leaves you with this sense of sort of despair. I mean, after years and years of protesting, I mean, I know so many people that Sergio and I came up with just kind of wiped their hands of it and just left because they were so, you know, beaten down by that process. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. So that's what I was going to actually ask you is first, I guess, how did you get involved with the anti-war movement? Like, did you come from a political background? Was your family political? And, and how did you find your way to uh, self-identifying as a socialist in the early 20 aughts when very few people were openly identifying themselves as socialists? Well, actually, I started self-identifying as a communist uh, when I was in, I think it was high school. Um, I grew up actually in a pretty conservative town. Um, and my parents were, uh, are um, pretty solid liberals, which you'll know is not a compliment. Um, but I grew up in a, in a Republican stronghold. Uh, and... It's no longer a Republican, actually. I found I, I was describing it to somebody, looked it up and discovered that it had turned blue somehow. Um, but but nonetheless, it, it was a, a pretty wealthy town. And that explains why you know, there are a lot of people who wanted to basically protect their money and didn't care, apparently, how, how that hurt other people. Um, I grew up traveling quite a lot. My father worked for a travel company, and uh, and so I I saw what life was like elsewhere. I think that made a big difference. Um, and and I was accused of being a communist on the school bus one day, and I said, "Yeah, so." <laughs> and that's what started it. And that's what started the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, and and you know, people challenged. I remember the first time I talked to my parents about it. Uh, I heard the tired refrain, nice in theory, doesn't work in practice. 
sure. And I'd like to say that I responded immediately, well, this doesn't work either, but I think I might not have been quite that savvy yet. That might have come up a few years later. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely identified as, a, 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 I didn't, couldn't articulate it this way then, but uh, a, on the left. I was certainly more left than, than anyone else I knew in, in the town I grew up in. And then I went to university at the University of Maryland and went to a, uh, a workshop, uh, a teach-in the ISO was doing about Palestine. And, uh, and I, I didn't know anything about Palestine when I went into that meeting, I, as I recall. I, I don't think that I had, it, it had entered my uh, awareness of what was going on. Um, and, and I was shocked and, and immediately jumped in um, uh, to, to work. Um, and actually, I don't remember if there was a Students for Justice in Palestine at that point. I think there was. And, and that was what I started working with. But I was also working with the ISO. So it was my, my politics um, were really, really formed by, by being in the International Socialist Organization. And uh, there are a lot of things you can say about that, um, good and bad. Uh, I'd say that it's it, it makes life a bit harder when you don't have a, a line and you have to figure out the politics for yourself. But uh, but there, I think people often think of the ISO as a um, oh did I freeze right now? No, you're fine. Um, I think they think of it as a a sort of monolithic entity and my experience of it was sure there were there were times when it felt like that but mostly it's composed of individual people um, and a lot of people who I really respect um, who are extremely committed and, and survived that burnout that you're talking about um, and sometimes that means uh, you think everybody else should be able to do the same commit to the same level of activism that, that you have. And, sure. and my activist burnout happened sort of periodically. I would drop off the map here and there. Um, and I didn't recognize it as burnout. I said, oh, this, this thing is getting too, too much. Like, I have to concentrate on this now. Or I've moved and I'm not really connected where I am now. But, but the truth is that all of that uh, is also about, um, about burnout. So I think I um, uh, was it Medea Benjamin that you were talking to about how to yeah how to how to avoid burnout and and I thought her uh, um, answer to that question was really powerful and really true. You have to just maintain connection and and find find fun in it um, and find your community and have support that's that's there. Anyway, I don't. Sorry, I'm rambling now. I don't. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. I was more. I was. I was. It, it's a very important point. I mean, one of the things I think is important for people to hear from right now, uh, or some of the people, and that is people who have been doing this for some time, on and off. I mean, both full time, part time, jumping in and out. I mean, I think that's really important because you have this new wave of people since Bernie, since Black Lives Matter this time around, that are just getting involved. Like these are folks who've been involved for a few months, a few years. I think it's really important for them to hear all of this so they can sort of ease some of their own concerns, you know, some of their own challenges and worries they might have. Like, am I doing okay? What do I need to do? Am I making mistakes? I mean, like the more those of us who've been around the block a little bit, I think are open about this, the easier we're making it for people who come after us. I think that's right. And also sharing, and, and this is what the ISO is good for really and, and best at is is translating or um or conveying that that older experience um a, a sort of um a funnel of information about what it's like to be an older activist and what it what it what is needed but also was you know sometimes uh, lending itself to to burnout but i think you're right and and if we can accept that people come in and out and uh and not beat yourself up for it uh then then you then you maintain a lifetime of of activism and 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 that's not a like of finding ways to make your political life the way you engage with the power around you 
um, a force for change and a force for good in the world instead of just being a, yeah, a cog in the machine. Sure. What do you think are some of the main things you learned from your time with ISO, but also that anti-war work? Oh, I mean, you know what I would say the, the main thing I learned from anti-war work is that the people who are, um, on your side can surprise you. Like I, I wouldn't have there, I wouldn't have tagged every vet I met as somebody who is going to respond to, uh, to war with anti-war sentiment. Um, and, and there are people, you know, you never know which conversation you're going to have that brings somebody else over the, over the edge, right? We, we need to be, I think, generous in our, in our conversation. And this is, this is the case too for, I, I watched people have conversations, um, with, uh, what we called contacts in the, in the ISO and and be really aggressive and and challenge every every idea they had that wasn't right um and those people inevitably didn't stick around uh and you can say oh they weren't made for it but the the truth is that if you if you talk to people on their own terms and you're not um you're, you're working towards common form common education right? you're both trying to learn more about the situation in the world and what you can do to change it uh, instead of saying, I have the answers and here they are. And if you don't agree with me, you're out. Mm-hmm. You say, how can we find the answers? This is what I've learned. Do you, what do you think? What have you learned? And that's, that's the way to have productive conversations that bring people along instead of, uh, yeah, this, this driving apart that, that so often happens in society, but also especially on the left. Do you still consider yourself a socialist today? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and are, how does that? So sometimes I have to admit, I have moments of uh, doubt about the ability of people to govern themselves. Yeah. Well, t- well, please, by all means, <laughs> express I mean, some I, of those concerns. I don't have any crystallized thoughts on this, but like, God, I'm starting to lose faith. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, Sergio and I go back and forth uh, every day after every organizing meeting, after every campaign, after every canvassing effort. You know, one of us comes upstairs and is like, that's it. Stalinism's the answer. We need an elite class to call the shots and that's it. And then, you know, maybe the other one is like, no, like I had this conversation with someone and there's really this inherent ability to self-govern and people are creative and compassionate. Uh, it's trying to find, you know, that's what I found so interesting about um, Hart and Negri's latest book is that they were trying to like find a way to weave all of this in coming from the Seattle period, coming from that late 90s, early 2000s going, oh, well, yeah. you know, like obviously horizontalism in and of itself isn't enough. Obviously, we don't want a vanguard of like highly bureaucratized elites like calling the shots, but we have to find ways to kind of like mesh, mold, come up with different forms. And that to me is more interesting than being like, it's either verticalism or horizontalism. It's either this type of socialism or that type. It's like our ability to kind of be alchemists, I think, is is more fun and and more useful. Yes, a hundred percent. And I'm so glad you mentioned them because both because of that point, but also I I had forgotten what an impact uh, on me uh, the anti-globalization movement had had because I that was when I was politically radicalized. I started to so um, I had been so wrapped up in the plan, planning for there was supposed to be a September demonstration or October against uh, anti-globalization in DC. I was in Maryland. We were all like all hands on deck planning for a major demonstration. And then 9-11 happened. And so like my my experience had been that the really dangerous people in the world were anarchists. Right. <laughs> and clearly it was the anarchists responsible. I mean, it was the World Economic t- or the, the World Trade Center. Like it's obviously people who are against uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but that was where I was at in, in 2001. 
Um, but but what was important about that was not just uh, like this this terrible destruction of of the left and and what was beginning to be an alliance between trade unionists and uh, anarchists and socialists and everybody coming together and and people who are advocating for uh, minorities but also uh, um, for uh, the developing world. Uh, right. uh, there's no term that's good for. I know, and there's not <laughs> people who have been uh, taken advantage of for the last 500 years. <laughs> but uh, but all of that, all of that solidarity and um, progress was just snuffed out almost instantly. I think we had we had some unions participating in that protest, which turned into an anti-war demonstration instead. Um, but most of that was lost. And watching that, and then watching people try to rebuild that um, through, let's say, all the way up to Occupy, which I think is the best example we've had of something similar, um, is is also a lesson in perseverance. And and even when you feel like the left is completely rotten and nobody has any good ideas and and there's no way we're moving the country anywhere. Uh, something happens and people pull out the stops and and we've got a movement again so yeah it's not inevitable right but it can it can still it can still happen yeah and and you're right i think we and they're right that we we need to figure out how figure out what works because we and so there's one thing you know people are always asking socialists to tell them what we want instead then Right. Uh, okay. So, if that's what you want, what are the specific rules? Right. And the, the can answer is you can't say because people have to decide that for themselves. But but it's it's it exposes a real um, vulnerability, but also a real strength that we can't we don't necessarily get it right. Yeah. You have to try something, see if it works, and if it doesn't work, throw it out and try something else. Um, like the assemblies, it's a fantastic radical democracy where everyone actually gets a voice. It's also interminable and <laughs> impossible for people to support long term and impossible for people to continue to build a world that we can live in while building a world we want to live in. Right? There's there's just uh, we have to we have to as activists both in uh, in um, moments of of uprising, but also in the long term, we have to be able to support people's choices to exist in the world, as well as fight the structures that they, you know, perpetuate through existing in the world. Yeah, no, no, no. I, it's a great point. I mean, I think we're even going through that right now to some degree with the with the protests. For instance, I remember just no less than a few months ago or a couple months ago now. You know, we had a lot of friends and people we know who are just getting involved and they were like, is this it? Like, how long can this happen? It's like, well, what infrastructure exists for people to be able to constantly engage in an up in uprisings while also making sure that their kids have childcare? In other words, you could engage in the uprisings, assemblies or occupations indefinitely if there's an infrastructure, a societal, cultural, political, economic infrastructure that can then support those kinds of activities we obviously, as you mentioned, like we're trying to f both create the world we want to live in, but then create a world where people can live in it at the same time. And that's that's the tough part. I mean, you see yeah, it, we're, it. We're seeing it now. Why the Black Panther movement was so dangerous, yeah. right? Because it was actually about community support and providing the things that people needed um, so that they could be more radical. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, oh, shoot, I lost that thought. Um, let me ask you this and see if it comes up through this i was going to ask you how your work the current work you do so you it mentioned oh. in your bio oh go ahead go ahead i remember so so there's this uh th th this pod conversation right there's there's this conversation about uh whether it's an expression of privilege to have your children looked after by a tutor and make a pod of like six or whatever kids in a in a small um, 
small group and and the argument is that this is uh, um, only possible for people who have the money to support that it's um, it's going to exacerbate inequalities um, but my first thought when I heard that was wouldn't that be great if that's how school looked like right. and and it that people are communicating with each other directly uh, to talk about what education maybe should look like and and doing what's best for their children supporting each other in what is actually also childcare um, but also figuring out how to help their children continue to learn seems to me like an extreme lesson in solidarity building yeah. um, and and of course you can't do it if you can't afford to pay the teachers but there are a lot of people who want to be teachers out there and can't do it because there isn't any money for it. So like, if we wanted to think about what a radically reformed education system might look like in the United States, we've got something that people have come up with collectively. And it's not a bad idea. Like yeah. small classroom sizes, one-on-one -on -one interaction with teachers, like it's, anyway, people come up with the ideas they need. Yeah if you give them the opportunity and make sure that some people don't get more than, you know, no, it's, some people get nothing. <laughs> it's been the great frustration of this entire process. I mean, it seems to me that there are very creative solutions or even I've been grappling with the concept of solutions, but there are very clear ways that we could address this in much better ways in creative ways like i've seen so many people come up with creative ideas about how schools could be restructured or how even our downtowns could be restructured how living environments could be restructured this is such an opportunity uh it would seem but again that would require the kind of political organization and will necessary to implement those ideas so that part obviously is lacking i was going to sort of transition because I know we're towards the end of our, our conversation, but I wanted to transition to my favorite part of your bio is that you mentioned that in your free time, you're working towards a PhD in archaeology on top of being a mother, on top of being uh, a wage slave, on top of just being an individual human being who's trying to grapple with all of the kind of spiritual, emotional, social challenges that all of us do. Um, how... I, well, we've got about 15 minutes to talk about this. So let me, I'll start slow. What got you interested in archaeology, first of all? Um, uh, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, so I wanted to, I, I started off as a political scientist twice. Uh, I went to two undergraduate uh, universities, um, didn't finish at the first, finished at the second. Um, and both times I started off poli-sci and left for history. Um, because I was really interested in political power um, and authority and I wanted to understand, I, I wanted political theory, I wanted to understand why people behave the way they do politically and what what sort of the, the rules are. Uh, and both times I was incredibly frustrated by the, the box that was placed around political theory in the United States. I, you just couldn't ask the questions I was asking. Um, it's not quite like economics, but it's also not unlike economics in that the framework has to pass muster. Um, uh, at least in the places where I was, where I was. And, um, and, and at DePaul, where I finished, it was also a department that, that let Norman Finkelstein go, uh, right. and, and that was unacceptable. Uh, but the, the, the turn to history was, was because I thought there you can ask questions. Uh, you, I, I, I also, I wanted to know, you know, there's this, Political theory has often had this original man, Rousseau, Hobbes, they're all talking about man alone in the wilderness. Right. And I knew man had never been alone in the wilderness. <laughs> and plus there was woman. Right. <laughs> so, like, and no, no, now I know, no mother has ever raised a child alone. Like, it's just not physically possible. Um, so, you... I wanted to know what, what politics looked like in the past before 
we had our sort of Western liberal concepts of political order sort of imprinted on all of our understanding of the present and the past. I wanted to know what people were really doing in Mesopotamia or in uh, um, the Stone Age or whatever, whatever I was thinking then, I was thinking, okay, how far back do we have to go to find before hierarchical power? And then I found my advisor who wrote a book called The Political Landscape. And, um, and I was uh, really impressed by how well you could use the past to talk about these ideas. So it, that book was about the, the way landscape construction shapes the expectations people have about the world that they live in. Um, and so that brought me... I thought maybe anthropology, maybe archaeology. Anthropology is if I want to figure out if there are alternative political systems existing in the world today. Um, and, and of course, there, there are a number, but, uh, but I went towards archaeology and looking at, okay, how do people start off uh, legitimizing political inequality? And that's what drove me to archaeology. So I, I then discovered that you have to have a place where you have to ask that question. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and, and my advisor works in Armenia, so I uh, picked up work next door in Georgia. Okay. Um, and, and the reason that this is an interesting place for me, uh, for that question, is that the, the sort of standard narrative of how power is accumulated in the past is that people... Um, started storing their wealth and once you start storing your wealth you can hoard your wealth and once you've hoarded more wealth than somebody else then you have more power hence kings and priests and that's the end of equality or yeah or, or whatever so that's the the standard sort of uh, boilerplate explanation for the accumulation of wealth and the establishment of hierarchy in the place where I am studying, the, the emergence of visible inequality happened when people stopped being settled down. They started hurting and moving around uh, um, more, so they were more mobile. And, and then there are these huge burials where people are buried with lots of wealth um, and, and sacrificed animals, in some cases sacrificed people, probably. Uh, and, and so I wanted to know how you can justify how, how and most importantly, in the period, so this is the, in the Middle Bronze Age, there start being these huge burial mounds, which people, clearly people who had a social status tied to wealth. Um, and, and in the early Bronze Age, most importantly, it appears to have been a really egalitarian society. People were not buried with special things. There weren't houses that were bigger than others for the most part. Um, there weren't even towns that were much bigger than others. There were a couple of larger towns, but mostly small villages with people who, for whom resources were more or less equally distributed. Um, so I wanted to know, okay, this breaks the rules. This is not an accumulation of wealth. You can't actually hoard livestock. Uh, you can only support a certain amount, and then you can always have them stolen stolen away in the dead of night. Like there's, and hence the warfare that accompanied this rise in um, in wealth and inequality. But but I saw something missing, and that's a, an understanding of the um, the let's say to use in Marxist terms, ideological component. Like how, what, what justification was there? I can see, you know, how they got stuff, but how do you justify having more stuff after a thousand years in which nobody had more than anybody else, apparently, as far as we know. Right. And so that was, that's where, where I, what I'm studying and uh, why I'm studying it there. And, and my answer for the moment is that people used relationships with animals to naturalize in a very literal way uh, their, their power over other people. So if people are like sheep, then the shepherd is a necessary role. If 
uh, hunting prowess indicates the, let's say, the uh, will of the gods, then he who hunts, uh, especially in a fancy way, is, um, yeah, deserves the crown. So that's what I'm studying. No, this is awesome. We should do a whole nother, let's do a whole separate program just about what you're studying. No, seriously. I mean, I wanted when to I use. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Yeah. I mean, I find all of this totally fascinating and we don't hear enough from the archaeologists of the world in terms of politics. Like we don't, I mean, you know how it goes. You've been involved with enough stuff on the left where like, we don't like, we might ask like some philosopher to come and speak at a conference or something, but we're never ever, I don't think I've ever been to a left wing event in the United States where we've asked an archeologist to come speak about anything, but it would be the useful. History ends in the 1880s. Didn't you know that? Yeah, no, no, no. And I, yeah, especially from your background. I mean, you, you, you start with these socialist principles and then, you know, experience all of this, all the politics and so forth, but then trying to understand it in a different way. I mean, one of the great frustrations I've had is in the university setting, at least this division between the disciplines. And so one of the things that I've loved doing with both writing, interviewing people, doing the, the radio slash media stuff is to bring people from such, you know, different uh, disciplinary backgrounds and, you know, let their work get exposed to people who might only hear from a journalist or a political scientist. Like, you know, if you turn on TV or hear NPR, like you can hear a political scientist every 30 minutes, but like you might not hear uh, a feminist philosopher or you might not. What'd you say? I said, or an economist, God forbid. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> but I think it's really important. That's not even a science. No, <laughs> no. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> But I think you're right. And I think I think even more than having, though, uh, conversations with people who are doing all these different things, which is great. And it's I'm actually really impressed by this, this let's say, speaker series that you have with these interviews. Um, conversations among these disciplines are very rare. And, you, you know, I could have a conversation with um, I'm an anthropo anthropological archaeologist, so I wouldn't say an anthropologist, but let's say a sociologist might have a very different take or a psychologist, um, you know, there are all of these different disciplinary approaches which create those boxes that I was so frustrated with in political science. And and once you're disciplined, uh, it's hard to see outside of it. Um, and I was I was actually so I I chose also though to do archaeology in part because I didn't think I could be dispassionate enough about uh, a contemporary subject. I didn't think I could I could maintain the distance that I thought academics needed to have uh, to study something fairly uh, and and write about it with dispassion. I thought I, if I, I I thought I would love to study what's happening, like the political consequences of Palestine. That would be I would have been really motivated by that, but I wouldn't have been able to write a dissertation without swearing. You know, it's right, right. That's not, that wasn't acceptable then. Um, but I think that maybe this wraps us up, brings us back to the beginning. Um, the thing that activists have also accomplished right now is changing these conversations in academia. Like the world is breaking down the ivory tower and that is a really good thing. You cannot, I mean, I am, I, I'm doing my dissertation at Cornell University, which is one of the oldest countries, uh, oldest uh, universities in the country. I don't actually know how old, but anyway, it's an established university. There's no reason they have uh, they're they're not at risk of losing their uh, their credit if they don't if they ignored what's going on in the world today, but they are there were um, not only movements from the faculty members but but more importantly real activism real uh, angry pushback from the graduate students to make more of an impact, to, to promise more, to commit more to making the world that we live in, the country that we live in, the systems that we as academics support better. And, and that is not something that I've seen before now. It's, it's not a conversation that has happened in universities. There are, and in anthropology departments, where you'd think people would be the most sort of 
sensitive to inequality uh, and and the systemic nature of the system of, of the world that, that we all occupy. Um, they they weren't they weren't talking about it and they weren't talking about their role and they weren't talking about their responsibilities and they are now right. and that's huge it's it we can't like or we can it's really important if we want to come up with new ideas based on all of this knowledge that we've accumulated academically like there are a lot of people with a lot of training and a lot of books under their belts uh who whose ideas will still be stuck in those disciplinary ruts unless they're pushed out of them. And if they're pushed out of them, then we get to bring all of this background knowledge, all of this learning into the movement. And, and that's also, I think, part of how we make something new. And vice versa. The hope, of course, yeah. being that the movements help inform some of what academia is doing as well. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. It's a great pleasure to catch up with you. I wish I could reach through the screen and give you a big old hug. It's been a long time since I've seen you in the flesh, but I, uh, I really, I really enjoyed catching up with you, and I, I'm even more fascinated now to dig into your academic work and your. When, when do you plan on finishing? If you don't mind me asking, I know that's a terrible question to ask. Uh, the plan was last year. Um, I, I think that the. Uh, so the end of the coming academic year. So in a year or so, I should be done. I have, I have a large portion of the dissertation written. Um, as I, I'm impressed, actually, that I was able to give this coherent of an explanation of what I'm doing. So it must mean that I'm close to done. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Catherine. I really Thanks appreciate so it. I have I I do not know your family, but uh, send them our love as well. And uh, yeah, I, w I wish y'all the best. And let's let's stay in touch while this is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I have never met Sergio. Sergio. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> You've never Hi. met. Hi. No. He he doesn't or have him. No, she looks familiar. I do. Yeah, yeah I, I do. do. <laughs> yeah, it was you know Sergio. Well, we met in the Marine Corps. And so when and I got his hair has changed, his hair has changed. Yes. So he used to look like Charlie Manson back when you probably met him. He had the long hair and then he had the beard and he, he looked like he was a character from platoon or apocalypse now for sure. But yeah, yeah, no, um, next time. Well, maybe next time we could, the three of us can talk. Cause I know Serge, uh, where did you spend your time? The, in the Hague, that's right. He was in oh, the Hague and went to, right, yeah. what was the name of the school? Uh, it's the uh, International Institute of Social Sciences under University of Rotterdam. International Institute of Social Sciences under the International, and under the, in under the University of Rotterdam. Yes, cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, maybe next time yeah. we'll, uh, all three we'll of us will talk. <laughs> <laughs> I could pick the brains of you two fascinating academics. <laughs> <laughs> all right Catherine good bye. talking to you take care it's a pleasure great to talk to you bye bye you've been watching park media i'm your host today vince Emanuele, and we will talk to you soon hey thank you for watching and listening if you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger you could become a patreon for as little as three dollars a month the link is available at our website parkmedia.org that's p-a-r-c media.org make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel below also you could find us on instagram at park media facebook at politics art roots culture and you could find me on twitter at vince emanuele